from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is right Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. There's exactly one old American hymn that everybody recognizes and that moves people who have no feeling for the spiritual or religious, because it long ago transcended the church and became a folk song and an anthem for civil rights. But its origins are unexpected and complicated. As part of our American Icon series, Trey Kay brings us the story of Amazing Grace. In 1748, a slave ship was heading back to England from Charleston, South Carolina, after having discharged its cargo of African natives. They were getting closer to home, just off the coast of Donegal, Ireland, when BAM! The ship gets battered by a violent storm. The boards of the hull are popping off, and water is gushing into the hold. It seems certain that the boat is going to go down. The captain and the crew work frantically to patch the leak. The captain orders a man named John Newton onto the deck to steer the vessel. And he he has to strap himself to the helm to avoid sliding down the, the deck. That's Steve Turner, author of Amazing Grace, the story of America's most beloved song. And it's at that point that he becomes a Christian. He um, vows that that if his life is is saved, that, that he's going to pursue this relationship with God. Miraculously, the ship survives the storm. Newton keeps his word and devotes the rest of his life to the Christian faith. Now, this is a famous story. And it's usually spun into some triumphant, I've seen the light moment. The story goes that Newton, who had worked in the slave trade for years, at that moment renounced slavery. But did Newton really have a conversion? He didn't leave the slave trade immediately. In fact, he went back to Liverpool and became the captain of a ship for the first time. And he did three voyages as a captain of a slave ship. Newton would captain slave ships for another 14 years. During this time, he was devout to his Christian practice, but he never saw his work in the slave trade as being at odds with his religion. After health problems drove him ashore for good, he eventually made his way into the Anglican clergy. Newton became the priest of a small chapel in the English town of Olney, Over time, he began to write hymns to accompany his sermons. On New Year's Day, 1773, he introduced his congregation to a hymn that was inspired in part by his near-death experience at sea. It's called Faith's Review and Expectation, but it's come to be known by its opening phrase. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like 
Pick me. That's Deborah Carlton Loftus, executive director of the Hymn Society of the United States and Canada. Well, it wouldn't have been to the tune that we all recognize as associated with Amazing Grace. Newton didn't write the tune that we know. Actually, he didn't write any tunes for his hymns. He wrote his verses in a common meter that could be sung to many different melodies. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It's often said that Amazing Grace was written by an abolitionist. But John Newton wasn't an abolitionist when he wrote it. He never spoke of slavery from the pulpit. And it wasn't until 1788, 15 years after he wrote the hymn, that Newton finally spoke out against slavery publishing an anti-slavery pamphlet, and becoming, finally, an outspoken abolitionist. But at the time, having written Amazing Grace wasn't his claim to fame. Was Amazing Grace a popular hymn in England at the time that John Newton wrote it? Actually not. It was not very well known, not considered in England to be one of his finest hymns. But it came over to the United States and... Uh, picked up some usage and popularity in the revival meetings of the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was a Protestant revival movement that began around 1790 and continued into the late 1850s. It started in western New York and moved down through the Ohio Valley into Kentucky and Tennessee. Folks would travel in covered wagons from far away to camp for a couple of weeks, worshiping with preachers from various denominations. Thousands of people would come together for these outdoor revival meetings. Singing was a big part of these meetings. There were choruses and refrains that people could learn quickly. At the time, America had several schools that had the purpose of training teachers to help church congregations engage in the beautiful harmonic singing of sacred words. Enthusiastic, even ecstatic singing was the hallmark of these large camp revival gatherings. Music scholars believe Amazing Grace was sung at these revivals to many different tunes. William Walker was a singing teacher in South Carolina who published a songbook called Southern Harmony in 1847. That's the first documented instance when Newton's words were set to a tune called New Britain. Deborah Loftus says that back in the heyday of the revival meetings, it wasn't only whites attending. We have documented that both free black persons and white people were together for these outdoor revivals, and there was a lot of interchange of musical styles. These singing styles were passed on through the generations in African-American families. We're hearing the singing of a family who are descendants of slaves that were featured in the 1990 Bill Moyers documentary about Amazing Grace. I think the, the, the song would have had um, 
a great attraction for, for the African slaves uh, that were in, in shadow slavery, in bondage, in cruel, uh, horrific oppression. That's Reverend Matthew J. Watts, pastor of the Grace Bible Church in Charleston, West Virginia. Amazing Grace would have spoke to their desire for an experience of freedom, of one day seeing God face to face, of being with him for all of eternity, and no longer subjected to the type of cruel treatment they experienced during slavery. When we've been there 10,000 years, Bright, Pastor Watts is singing a verse that today is often included in performances of Amazing Grace. But it's not something that was written by John Newton. That's because camp revival music leaders tended to do a bit of mashing up of hymns, singing them to different tunes, lifting verses from one hymn and singing them in another. That's what happened with Amazing Grace. In 1852, some of the verses written by Newton, along with the When We've Been There 10,000 Years verse, appeared in the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. Tom sings these amazing grace verses in his darkest hour. Author Harriet Beecher Stowe was the daughter and sister of revival preachers, and she may have heard Amazing Grace sung this way at a revival meeting. Some think her novel may have played a role in shaping how we sing Amazing Grace today. So it's a moment of fusion between traditional, you might say, high society, white culture, and popular culture, black culture, revival, evangelical culture. Jim Basker teaches English and history at Barnard College, and he's the editor of Amazing Grace, an anthology of poems about slavery. He says Stowe had met with runaway slaves, and she read slave narratives, and that she knew the song would resonate with African Americans. So when she reached into that scene, and this is a moment of fusion between whites and blacks, it's a white woman author creating one of the most memorable black characters in all of 19th century literature. She reached for what would be the paradigmatic song from his soul that he might sing on his deathbed, and it's Amazing Grace. The first recording of Amazing Grace was in 1922 by a group known as the Original Sacred Harp Choir. Around this time, the hymn was adopted as a folk song and musicologist John Lomax and his son Alan were famous for capturing authentic folk performances, like this 1935 recording of Kentucky folk singer Aunt Molly Jackson. In the 1920s and 30s, there were the beginnings of a recording industry, catering to the demand for songs appealing to a religious black audience. That's Reverend J.M. Gates' recording of Amazing Grace, which sold thousands of copies. And throughout the century, all of the great gospel singers would record the song, like Sister Rosetta Tharp. 
During the civil rights era, activist Fannie Lou Hamer would lead protesters to sing songs like Amazing Grace, helping to define racial equality as a moral and religious pursuit. By the 1960s, white folk singers were finding their way to Amazing Grace, like Arlo Guthrie, who sang the song at Woodstock. But Guthrie's version was not nearly as popular as one by another white artist who would soon follow. My name is Judy Collins. In 1969, Judy Collins was attending what she calls an encounter group when things got really contentious. Collins' record producer happened to be there. And he said, you know, people are really at each other's throats. Isn't there anything you could do to settle them down? Why don't you sing something? And my grandmother was a church-going Methodist, and uh, she had taught me Amazing Grace when I was a little girl. So I sang Amazing Grace. It was one of the few songs that I knew that I figured everybody would, would know something of, and they all sang, and it did settle everybody down. The next day, that same producer called and said, we have to record that song. So I said, well, let's go into a church somewhere. And so we went up to uh, the campus of Columbia University, and we went into the chapel. It's called St. Paul's. It's a gorgeous chapel, and we all got together and we recorded Amazing Grace. Electra Records released Collins' recording of Amazing Grace on her 1970 Wales and Nightingales album. My record company was flabbergasted. They didn't know what hit him. The album went gold, and her recording of John Newton's hymn became a top 40 hit. And then it seemed like everybody, black or white, rock or blues or country, wanted to put their own signature on the song. Judy Collins' recording of Amazing Grace was also a hit on British radio, which means that two centuries after Newton had penned it in England, where it never really caught on, it was finally finding an audience. This caught the ear of a bagpiper from the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, who was inspired to give Collins' arrangement a Highlander feel. The Dragoon Guard's recording of Amazing Grace also became a major hit in England, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa. Collins liked hearing her arrangement on the bagpipes. And I am thrilled that it has now permeated the police and firefighters. For centuries, bagpipes have been an important part of Celtic funeral traditions. 
But the Dragoon Guard's recording sparked the tradition of piping Amazing Grace and memorials for police, firefighters, and military. It's certainly a tradition New Yorkers know well after the attacks on September 11, 2001. I can hear it. You know, I live on the Upper West Side, and about a block from me is the Firefighters Memorial on Riverside Drive. And so every once in a while, we hear the bagpipes coming up from the river, and we hear them playing Amazing Grace. And we see, like, 5,000 firefighters out there in the street with their uniforms. It's it's an amazing thing. It's very moving. And it's, of course, the appropriate uh, place for this song to go. I mean, it belongs in these situations because it is regenerating the idea of hope and forgiveness. Amazing And after a mass shooting at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, President Barack Obama offered the song's message of hope and forgiveness to the mourners. Author Steve Turner. You know, Obama sings at the church in Charleston after the... uh, the murders and uh, you know, sung when policemen have funerals in New York. It's, it, it just seems kind of like an all-purpose, hopeful song. Barnard College professor James Basker says the song, both the musical notes and its lyrics, appeal to people at moments of intense suffering. And they appeal without any narrowness. There's no specific condition. There's no specific religious faith. There's no specific cultural context. It's just about that thing that human beings share, which is pain. And the imaginative yearning, and this is the thing about human beings, we're able to imagine and to yearn for joy and peace, for relief from the miseries of this world. Um, So it's it's the use of the human imagination, both the creative one that made the song and the receptive, interactive one that can identify with it that lifts us up. Amazing Grace. Throughout its history, Amazing Grace has spoken to Americans' belief in new beginnings and reinvention. That's a very important part of the American mentality, you know, that you can start again, that you can come from nothing and succeed, and you can overcome a bad or dubious or hampering past. So all those things are, are in the song. I you can feel as though you are lost. And somehow know that you'll be found. What you say, girl? I'm found. We still can't feel you. But now, Since that story aired last year, Deborah Carlton Loftus has retired from her post as executive director of the Hymn Society. The story was produced by Trey Kay, 
who also has a terrific podcast called Us and Them. Coming up, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the Harriet Beecher Stowe novel we just heard about in that Amazing Grace story. People think that Uncle Tom was like a water-toting... Shuffling, kowtowing, you know, sniveling coward. But those people haven't read the book. How Uncle Tom became a pejorative, and maybe shouldn't have. That's next on Studio 360. He's one of the most beloved American fictional characters of the 19th century, who, in the 20th century, became an infamous caricature, Uncle Tom. You uh, acting just like an old Uncle Tom. Another fraud counterfeit. I'm going to punish you. You ain't got no back off of me. That's from 1967, Muhammad Ali yelling at Ernie Terrell before their championship fight. 115 years after Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin in which the fictional slave, Tom, convinced millions of people that slaves were human and slavery evil. So how did things go so wrong for Uncle Tom in just a century? Phyllis Fletcher has the story in this episode of American Icons. I know one black person who would admit to me in public that she's read Uncle Tom's Cabin, and nobody even made her do it. I'm thinking it was probably the third or the fourth grade. Sakara Remu is a Seattle-area writer. She found the book in her Catholic school library. There is always kind of a section in the back of the library where there were books that you just kind of knew as a kid were kind of risque. You never checked them out because you didn't want to call attention to them. And one of the books for me was Uncle Tom's Cabin. She could tell from the drawing on the front that it had something to do with slavery. It made me uncomfortable when I looked at it, and I knew that it had historic significance. And the slavery was not something that was talked about in school. So it was pretty much, you know, the cover. I judged the book by the cover in this case. She read Uncle Tom's Cabin during library period in the next couple weeks. She didn't tell anyone. Even though the book really moved her, so did the character Uncle Tom. He was extremely compassionate, and he was a transformative figure for the people around him. He was very powerful, even though he seemingly had no power. What he did in the, in the story was a very brave thing to do. He died to save these women. That's Carver Gayton, one of the main characters in Uncle Tom's Cabin, George Harris, is based on his great-grandfather, a former slave named Lewis Clark. Stowe wrote that she interviewed Clark extensively when she was researching her book. Clark told Stowe about a man he knew who was beaten viciously by his masters. And he said, if God forgives them, I did nothing wrong, and God forgives them, I'll forgive them. And that's, if you read Uncle Tom's Cabin, what Uncle Tom said right before he perished, uh, it's almost the exact same, the same words. He's a poor, miserable critter. It's awful to think of. Oh, if you only could repent. The Lord would forgive him now. He ain't done me no real harm. Only open the gate of the kingdom for me. That's all. 
Okay, okay, okay. If you try to read Uncle Tom's Cabin today, you might end up cringing in the fetal position, rolling your eyes with your shirt pulled up over your nose. It is sentimental. The dialect and some of the scenes are over the top. Some of the characters are crazy stereotypes. And like a lot of things that seem racist now, Gayton says the book is a product of its time. She said that blacks are, you know, they're meek and they're, you know, they're more Christian than than whites, and particularly white males. You know, she was um, like a lot of uh, abolitionists and a lot of the people of the Victorian area that they were patronizing. They felt as though they were part of this elite class. They knew what was best for black people. Harriet Beecher Stowe was a New Englander. She was living in Maine with her husband and children when Congress cracked down on runaway slaves. She started to write a fiction series in an abolitionist newspaper about slaves and their quests for freedom. A mother who crossed a freezing river on foot with her baby so they wouldn't be separated in a sail. The huge green fragment of ice on which she alighted pitched and creaked as her weight came on it. But she stayed there not a moment. With wild cries and desperate energy, she leaped to another and still another, cake tumbling, leaping, slipping, springing upwards again. Her shoes are gone, her stockings cut from her feet, while blood marked every step. But she saw nothing, felt nothing, till dimly as in a dream she saw the Ohio side and a man helping her up the bank. The man who encouraged them to go? Uncle Tom. Tom had chances to try to escape, and he didn't. Tom was literally sold down the river. On the boat, he saved a slave owner's child, little Eva, from drowning. The child's family bought him. Tom played with Eva and took care of her until she died of tuberculosis. He made people question how they perceived him initially and how they treated him and how they believed people like him should be treated and what that meant about who they were as people. And then... Uncle Tom... You know, was beaten to death by Simon Legree. Beaten to death because he would not give the names of two runaway female slaves. Do you know, I made up my mind to kill you. I have done just that thing, Tom. Unless you'll tell me what you know about these year gals. Do you hear? Speak. Do you know anything? I know, Massa. But I can't tell anything. I can die. I can die, he says. That's pretty tough. People think that Uncle Tom was like a water-toting... Shuffling, kowtowing you know, sniveling coward. But those people haven't read the book. I think they're reflecting on a perspective of what transpired you know, after the book came out. And I was really surprised when I read the novel that Uncle Tom wasn't really an Uncle Tom in the way that we think of the term today. Adina Spingarn was in grad school at Harvard when she read Uncle Tom's Cabin. And I made a note to myself in my notebook, oh, I should look up how Uncle Tom transformed from a, this Christ figure in Stowe's novel into a race traitor. She did look it up and wrote about it and turned it into her dissertation. So the first time that I find Uncle Tom being used in a negative, 
context that isn't specifically rejection of Uncle Tom's religion uh, is in 1883. 30 years after the novel came out. And that is when a black New York lawyer named Walter G. Christopher gave a paper to an African-American literary society called the Bethel Historical and Literary Society in Washington, D.C. He was arguing that blacks should go to trade school instead of college. Not a popular argument today, but back then it was part of a hot debate. To make his point, Christopher said, Of course, no one wishes to revive the Uncle Tom type of manhood. I despise that as heartily as anyone. But a man who will kick up a row when he knows that he can't win is a fool. He wanted to distance himself and all black people from a symbol of a painful past. There was really a long process in which sometimes Uncle Tom could be referred to in a positive way, sometimes in a negative way. In the early 20th century, Tom was still a sympathetic figure to many Northern whites and to many blacks. Black newspapers were publishing new fiction pieces in his voice. And Tom was still a moneymaker. Black actors and white ones in blackface were performing Uncle Tom in plays and vaudeville acts. It's really in that version that Uncle Tom becomes the Uncle Tom, the passive uh, kind of uh, old, cringing sycophant. That's David Reynolds' take on it. He's a professor at the City University of New York. He looked at how theater companies produced Uncle Tom's Cabin for white audiences. Most of the play posters portray a bald, stooped man, very arthritic person on a cane, very subservient. Reynolds says reviewers tended to judge the play on how pathetic Tom was and how dramatically he died. In 1911, a black theater manager wrote in the Chicago Defender that the Uncle Tom plays had outlived their usefulness. In the 1910s, Uncle Tom becomes a figure for the old kind of leader, the leader who accommodated too much. And that's when Uncle Tom becomes dangerous. It was basically downhill for Tom from there. Each generation of black writers and activists, from Marcus Garvey to James Baldwin, found new reasons to reject Uncle Tom. Pray for those who use them despitefully. Today, uh, Martin Luther King is just a 20th century or modern Uncle Tom or a religious Uncle Tom who is doing the same thing today to keep Negroes defenseless in the face of attack that Uncle Tom did on the plantation to keep those Negroes defenseless in the, in the face of the attacks of the Klan in that day. Malcolm X said that on TV. A Tom today is someone whose loyalty to white people for personal gain puts other blacks in danger. And if you're Tracy Jordan on 30 Rock, a Tom reminds you of everything corny about white people. Ah, two wears khakis. Uncle Tom, party of one. Uncle Tom, party of one. You can't call someone that if you've never read the book. You know what I think? I think you're ashamed of being black and you're an embarrassment to your community. Poor Tom. He's a punchline. Not a happy ending. But another main character, George Harris, the one based on Lewis Clark, makes it to Canada and ultimately back to Africa. I want a people that shall have a tangible, separate existence of its own. And where am I to look for it? On the shores of Africa, I see a republic. There it is my wish to go and find myself a people. The real guy didn't do that. Near the end of his life, Lewis Clark was destitute in Kentucky. A reporter found out who he was, 
the inspiration for a major character in Uncle Tom's Cabin. He wrote about him. The article went viral. There were calls for the Stowe family to help him out, but they denied he was the real guy. So Carver Gayton is doing what he can to make sure more people know his great-grandfather's story. He helped with a reprint of Clark's slave narrative, and he's writing another book about him. When he meets people who don't want to read Uncle Tom's Cabin, he wants them to at least know the book's place in history. People forget about the fact that the anti-slavery movement was on the ropes before that book could come out. The Northerners were not that supportive of challenging militarily you know, Confederacy and weren't that concerned about the institution of slavery. But that book changed perspectives. If you look at it the right way, it could change your perspective even now. You could think of Tom as a hero. There aren't too many people that I know of outside of a Martin Luther King who would put their life on the line like that for other people. As for Sakara Remu, the writer in Seattle, she's been called an Uncle Tom. She knows it's supposed to be an insult, but she doesn't take it that way. If I'm an Uncle Tom, that means I am compassionate. I'm making the best out of challenging circumstances. Like, I'll take that. I'll take that. Phyllis Fletcher produced our story in 2013. To stay on the subject of books for just another minute, we're working on a project for and about book lovers, and we've got a question. What's a self-help book that you might have been a little embarrassed about reading in public, but that actually helped you? What exactly prompted you to buy that book, and how did it make life better? Record a voice memo with your answer and send that to incoming at studio360.org. And you might hear it on an upcoming episode. Just over a century ago, in 1915, a book called Spoon River Anthology was published. In more than 200 poems, the residents of Edgar Lee Masters' fictional Midwestern town of Spoon River speak to us from the grave. And death has made them talkative. They tell us about their unrealized hopes and dreams and damaged lives. The book was a landmark in American poetry. The poems took on taboo subjects, sex and abortion and suicide. And they told a story of everyday America that was not positive or pretty. And it became a bestseller. Curtis Fox looked into Spoon River Anthology and its legacy. Spoon River Anthology sold 80,000 copies in its first year and has never been out of print. I'll say that again because for poetry, that's pretty much unheard of. Since 1915, Spoon River has never been out of print. Edgar Lee Masters was already a ripe 46 years old when the book came out, and his previous efforts gave absolutely no indication that he was someone who would radically change American literature. Masters anticipated modernism. Douglas Unger is a novelist who teaches at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and at the Black Mountain Institute. And I think what he did, consciously or not, is that he took on and critiqued the whole 
trope of bucolic rural America with the white farmhouse and the red barn and the brimming silo. Harold Arnett. Take this poem and its portrait of a man trapped by his life in rural America. Harold Arnett says he's a failure. We don't know why, he doesn't explain. But failure in those days usually meant bankruptcy. He speaks to us about his last moments. I leaned against the mantel. Sick. Sick. Thinking of my failure. Looking into the abysm. Weak from the noonday heat. A church bell sounded mournfully far away. I heard the cry of a baby and the coughing of John Yarnell, bedridden, feverish, feverish, dying. Then the violent voice of my wife. Watch out, the potatoes are burning. I smelled them. Then there was irresistible disgust. I pulled the trigger. Blackness. Light. Unspeakable regret. Fumbling for the world again. Too late. Thus I came here, with lungs for breathing. One cannot breathe here with lungs, though one must breathe. Of what use is it to rid oneself of the world, when no soul may ever escape the eternal destiny of life? So here we have a a graphic poem about a suicide, where as soon as he pulls the trigger, he regrets it. Fumbling for the world again. Too late. Which makes you wonder, why did poems like this catch the popular imagination in 1915? Edgar Lee Masters hit the heart of a disillusionment that was abroad in the land. Well, I was sort of looking for that in poetry, I guess. Probably a lot like readers in 1915, Matt Rasmussen was drawn to the brute honesty of Spoon River when he came upon it in his high school library. Matt's a poet now, and his latest book was a finalist for a National Book Award. In my own life, my brother committed suicide when I was 16. And so I found in poetry a form of mourning that I didn't really see anywhere else. That was private, also in a way public, you know, it's it's sitting there in the library. And so those are the sort of the poems I I gravitated towards, the, the darker ones. I think there's a few suicides in the book. And murders and ghastly accidents and sexual violence. He is, in many of the poems, questioning directly Victorian American values of the way women should behave, the way men and women should behave with each other, what marriage means, what family means. And formally what he did was... He wrote a cycle of poems in which more is happening in the white space between the poems than actually happens in the poems. Minerva Jones. A sequence of poems that begins with Minerva Jones is a good example of how Masters uses that white space between the poems to tell a complex story. It's obviously a very, very sad poem. Minerva Jones is the village poetess. Uh, She is sensitive. She is intelligent. Herbert Russell is the author of the only full-length biography yet written about Edgar Lee Masters. We're dealing with a person who is herself not particularly pretty. She's also vulnerable because she is very much by herself. I am Minerva, the village poetess, hooted at, jeered at by the yahoos of the street for my heavy body, cock-eye, and rolling walk, 
and all the more when Butch Weldy captured me after a brutal hunt. He left me to my fate with Dr. Myers, and I sank into death, growing numb from the feet up, like one stepping deeper and deeper into a stream of ice. Will someone go to the village newspaper and gather into a book the verses I wrote? I thirsted so for love. I hungered so for life. For all its candor, Spoon River is a masterpiece of euphemism. This poem was about rape and abortion, but those words never appear. It's part of Minerva's character. That's Kathleen Rooney, a poet, publisher, and educator in Chicago. She might not put it that way. You know, I think it's obviously a monologue like these pieces are, and I think, you know, he was trying to write it as she might have chosen to represent that experience. First of all, it's 1915, and one doesn't write or speak directly of such incidents. If anything, you do it indirectly. She's raped by Butch Weldy. Captured me after a brutal hunt is in a way more terrifying than, you know, had he just said, raped me. And she is eventually the uh, subject of a, an abortion. She dies from it. I think the image that she presents in the poem is incredible. He left me to my fate with Dr. Myers, and I sank into death, growing numb from the feet up, like one stepping deeper and deeper into a stream of ice. Like one stepping deeper and deeper into a stream of ice. It's sort of morbid image, right? But uh, beautiful in a way. We hear later on about the man who impregnated uh, Minerva Jones. We hear more about the doctors in Spoon River. Dr. Myers. Dr. Myers is uh, a victim of the village, which is ironic because he himself has done a lot to save the village and its people. No other man, unless it was Doc Hill, did more for people in this town than I. In all the weak, the halt, the improvident, and those who could not pay flocked to me. I was good-hearted, easy Dr. Myers. I was healthy, happy, in comfortable fortune, blessed with a congenial mate, my children raised, all wedded, doing well in the world. And then one night, Minerva, the poetess, came to me in her trouble, crying. I tried to help her out. She died. They indicted me. The newspapers disgraced me. My wife perished of a broken heart. And pneumonia finished me. And pneumonia finished me. <laughs> He's, he is really, uh, th this is Master's view of the village right here. I think it's amazing that in just a few lines, Master's is able to show how multiple lives were ruined by this incident. And then, you know, you also get Mrs. Myers. He protested all his life long. The newspapers lied about him villainously. That he was not at fault for Minerva's fall, but only tried to help her. Poor soul, so sunk in sin, he could not see that even trying to help her, as he called it, he had broken the law, human and divine. Passers-by, an ancient admonition to you. If your ways would be ways of pleasantness, and all your pathways peace, love God and keep his commandments. 
Mrs. Myers belongs to a group of the very religious that always got under master's skin. She is very much a village moralist, and what she has learned about morality and religion is apparently more important to her than her relation with her husband. So now you've got the full story of Dr. Myers's tragedy and Minerva's tragedy and Mrs. Myers. Between them, the reader then imagines the story and begins to put together the story of the interrelationship of the whole town. So the book is visionary in that way. There's no other cycle of poetry in the American tradition that did that. There are at least two things about the creation of Spoon River that are kind of mind-blowing. The first is that nearly all the characters in the book were modeled on real people, many from the two Illinois towns where Masters grew up. The second is that Masters really didn't know what he was doing when he began writing it. He started it in mocking response to William Reedy, the editor of the St. Louis magazine Reedy's Mirror, which had been publishing his earlier, more conventional verse. Reedy was a very good critic uh, much of the time, and he was the one who told Masters that you really have to get away from this genteel, derivative, 19th century, moon June and spoon stuff and give us uh, real life. And Masters felt insulted after one of Reedy's exchanges with him, and so he sat down and he wrote eight of the Spoon River Anthology epitaphs, initially just as a joke. It was, they were a literary chip on the shoulder, and he sent these to Reedy and said, here, is this realistic enough for you? And Reedy recognized their value, and Spoon River Anthology was underway. The book turned out to be hugely influential in American culture. Sherwood Anderson read it in one night before writing his classic collection of interlocking stories, Winesburg, Ohio. Not only Sherwood Anderson, but Sinclair Lewis in Main Street and Babbitt, and later on, certainly Thornton Wilder and Our Town. Some scholars also point out the tonal echoes of Spoon River's anguished souls in the work of confessionalist poets like Robert Lowell. I hear my ill spirit sob in each blood cell as if my hand were at its throat. I myself am hell. After Spoon River, Masters wrote nearly 50 more books, but he reverted to the Moon, June, and Spoon stuff, and no one really reads those books anymore. He died in 1950. The headline in the New York Times made it clear why anyone other than his family and friends would care. Edgar Lee Masters dies at 81, wrote Spoon River Anthology. Curtis Fox produced our story with music by the Claudia Quintet. Special thanks also to Pike Malinowski and Katie Peterson. And that is just about it for today's show. You can find dozens more of our American Icon stories at our website, and there are some really great ones there. It's pri.org slash studio360. If you're already a fan of those segments and ours, good news. Soon, very soon, we'll be releasing a brand new series of American Icons. First up, The Muppets. And for newer fans, you can stay connected to Studio 360 by following us on Facebook or on Twitter, where we are at Studio 360 Show. And one of our favorite tweets this week came from listener Stephanie Dolan. 
She tweeted out our recent segment with Mount Erie's singer-songwriter Phil Elvram talking and singing about having lost his wife. Jesus, Stephanie tweeted, I was just making dinner, now I'm sobbing on the floor of my kitchen. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our show this week was mixed by Whitney Jones. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks very much for listening. Studio 360's American Icons Project is made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, Great Ideas Brought to Life, and by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, when Laurie Metcalf was offered a TV role 30 years ago, it was way before TV's golden age. Back then, I didn't want to be known as Urkel for the rest of my life. Laurie Metcalf on returning to the role of Aunt Jackie on Roseanne. What's up, deplorable? (laughs) Next time on Studio 360.